Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be with you for another informative episode of High Truths. Let's talk about contact tracing. Yes, I know. This is High Truths on drugs and addiction, not High Truths on COVID. But I can't help it. I am jealous of COVID. Los Angeles County Public Health has a contact tracing dashboard for COVID. Very cool and incredibly transparent to the public. In the seven-day period before February 8th, 2022, Los Angeles assigned 45,852 COVID cases to a contact tracing interview. Of those, 18.7% completed an interview, and of those, 601 contacts were identified, and 182 completed an interview. Kudos to Los Angeles for this data. I'm not sure how clinically meaningful it is, but we got the information. What I would do is take all those COVID contact tracing dollars and put them into contact tracing for overdoses. The overdose contact tracing dashboard would include number of overdoses, number of family interviews after an overdose, number of people at risk identified for future overdose, number of people connected to services, amount of naloxone distributed, similar to COVID, but for overdoses. I was recently on a fascinating call with the medical examiner of New York City and the public health team that was assigned to do contact tracing and a 360-degree view of each overdose victim. The medical examiner was also able to identify overdose victims that were connected to a previous overdose death in the same circle of family or friends. Knowing this, they were able to do preventive measures. A public health team engages with a traumatized family for three months, identifying various services the survivors need. They provide wraparound care to prevent further overdoses in that circle. For each overdose, there is a circle of family or friends at risk that can be saved. For each overdose, there is a teachable moment. Each overdose can be traced to a moment in childhood where preventive methods could have been implemented. We can learn from overdoses to implement changes that can save the next generation. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, High Truths. This is Anat Schlocker and sister of Dr. Ronit Lev and one of her biggest fans since even since we were little. And of course, the podcast. My question is, I hear you talk about addiction and various treatments for addiction. What reputable treatments exhibit of drug addiction that do not require medications? Thank you, Anat, for calling into the show and being part of High Truths with your questions. I am going to find a wonderful expert to answer that, someone who is able to treat addiction without medications. Mark Azoulay is a psychotherapist in private practice in Boulder, Colorado. He is past president of the Group Psychotherapy Society. His clients suffer from addiction, anxiety, and other conditions. His expertise is treatment without medications. You can find Mark Azoulay's bio on the High Truth show notes. Mark Azoulay, welcome to High Truths. 
I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You are a psychotherapist from Boulder, Colorado, and you specialize in addiction, among other mental health conditions. And tell us, what is your professional pathway and passion um, for this profession? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. But I mean, the main thing is that I started working in addiction because I'm in recovery myself. And therapy played a huge role in my recovery process, really getting to understand myself, work through some, you know, childhood trauma. And it saved my life. I really can't minimize that at all. It really, truly saved my life. I would have been dead, you know, in a gutter somewhere if it wasn't for that. I was an opiate user. So having therapy and having a therapist that, you know, one was interested in me, but cared about me and helped me develop coping skills and develop a sense of purpose and principles was, was really critical. So that inspired me to get into the work and try to pay it forward, you know, as, as part of my recovery process, truly, you know, part of that 12 step. And that's, that's really beautiful because you've been affected, impacted by addiction, um, have recovery and now helping other people. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. I really do. I, well, I can say this. I'm not a huge 12 step person now. I did it for about 12 years. I'm sorry, 12, two years, two years um, when I was in Pittsburgh, but I do think that last step is really critical of giving back in some way. And therapy is a way that I get to do that, to kind of have my story matter in a lot of ways. And and would you mind sharing with us your your journey in into drugs and addiction? Like how old were you when you started? What what drug did you start with? Yeah, yeah, I can I can run through that. So I as a kid was completely sober, totally sober all through high school, right? I was actually very, very afraid of being out of control. I was very, very afraid of um, drugs. I thought they were like weird, like mind control things. I had this like really extreme fear around a lot of that. Uh, growing up, I was just like a nerdy kid, like a real dork nerd, right? I got bullied. I, um, you know, loved Dungeons and Dragons. I loved Warhammer. I loved, you know, video games. I was really, you know, I, I was really introverted. I was unbelievably shy. I think when I was alone, I was happy, but it was difficult for me to be in any kind of social situation. And I was really, looking back, like really afraid of the world. And over time built up a lot of um, internalized shame and a lot of judgments about myself. So when I went to college, I did what a lot of people did and reinvented myself. But I reinvented myself based on what a 17 year old boy thinks is cool, which for me was like a drug user was a uh, punk rocker, was, you know, someone that's good with girls, somebody who doesn't give, you know, a damn about life, like this really kind of live fast, die young mentality. But that, that wasn't me, you know, that was just, I was still like a sensitive kid underneath all that. But in going through that, I was kind of swept away by this toxic masculinity idea of not saying no to anything, of saying no would be a, a admission of weakness or would be something that I could be judged for. So when people were like, hey, you want to try these drugs? I was like, yes, yes, I've done it a hundred times. I'm, I know all about cocaine. I know all about, you know, um, uh, ecstasy, all these things. And I was what they call in the industry a polydrug abuser, which means I used pretty much everything. Uh, what I've found in my work especially for young adults, people tend to either be into alcohol or everything else. I was an everything else individual, didn't really drink that much, but whatever was available, I, I would use it. And, you know, we can go more depth if you're interested, but it was driven what's a, a lot what's by- What's the very, very first drug you ever tried? Oh, marijuana, for sure. Yeah, it was it was smoking weed. Um, the, the main drug, the main pull of that is uh, my first girlfriend had broken up with me and I was distraught and destroyed. And that's where this whole- reinvent myself idea came from. And one of my friends on the dorm was like, hey, do you want to come over, smoke some weed and talk about it? So I share that because in the beginning, it was a way to gain intimacy, especially with other men, to be able to be emotional and connect with them. I think a lot of guys use drugs and alcohol as a way to talk about our feelings. And weed for me in the beginning was very much that. You know, quickly was a gateway drug for everything else. But in the beginning, it, it was that kind of, okay, now that I'm high, I can be vulnerable. I can be emotional. Wow. Well, you take me back to my high school days that I was hoping I'd forget by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you're right. I was I was this geeky little kid. And when I went to high school, I wanted to like pretend that I wasn't that person. And, and uh, actually, I lied about how old I was because I was very young. I was like 15 going to college, and I just said that I was 18. 
I didn't want to be so young. And I like, I was 18 for like three years. <laughs> Until you finally caught up. <laughs> right. And um, what I tell them now, you know, now my mom about to be a grandmother, I tell my kids when they were in high school that if you're geeky when you're in high school, that's good because that means you have the highest rate of success afterwards. Um, so geeky in high school is not, not a bad thing, you know, like you say. Um, and I haven't met a single, as now as a doctor, I haven't met a single person who uh, is into fentanyl or hard drugs that didn't start with marijuana. They all, they even dismiss it like, oh, yeah, marijuana, just like you said. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, and then, you know, quickly other things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a gateway drug from a couple of angles. I think the first one is that put me in touch with drug dealers. You know, I was smoking in Pittsburgh where marijuana was illegal. You know, I'm in Boulder, Colorado now, and it's legalized, which in some ways is, you know, pros and cons. But I think one pro of it is that it doesn't connect people with like the dealer economy, right? With the black market economy. Mm. So once I met a dealer that could sell me marijuana illegally, like, of course he had other stuff, you know, he always had other stuff and he was always trying to sell me other stuff. And as I got more confident with marijuana, which for me didn't have too much of an effect. Like, like I was so afraid of drugs. So when I smoked weed, I didn't, I didn't realize that it wasn't as bad as I thought. Right? I thought it would like lose my mind or just like go crazy or something. Like, wasn't that bad? So I was like, okay, well, if this one isn't that bad, maybe cocaine's not that bad either. You know, maybe opium's not that bad yeah. either. You know, um, and it just created that that snowball where I just started trying everything. Right. And but what we what people anybody's listening needs to know is when you were using weed, maybe it wasn't that bad. But now with the high potency THC, it, some people who use Marijuana, it acts sometimes more like meth, right? Then what do you think of something mellow? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And we do see that in some of the work that I do in Colorado, especially with, you know, dabs or with resins or oils where it's highly concentrated THC. It's not even smoking a, a plant anymore. But yeah, I mean, the weed I was buying in Pittsburgh was just like brown kind of street weed. <laughs> you know, it wasn't yeah. the, the super high potency stuff that, that's on the streets now. Right. So my sister, I'm so excited that my sister called into High Truths, but uh, she has, and her question to to the program and to you that I ask is are, um, tr regarding the treatment of addiction. What does addiction treatment look like that does not require medications? Yeah, um, so I can talk a lot about that. I'm happy that I'll be on the show to talk about it. I think. I, I, where do I start? I think the two main things I want to talk about is psychotherapy and then mindfulness. So I'll talk about mindfulness first, is that a big part of my process of getting sober was learning how to meditate. Uh, back in Pittsburgh in school, there was a Zen monk that would come to our, our school every, every week and I would sit with her. Sometimes I was the only person sitting there and just feel. And for a drug user, especially me that used depressants, being able to courageously feel my experience was so huge because I was using drugs to numb out. And I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with, with mindfulness, but you know that what they saw in the movies, which is you know, sitting on top of a mountain, meditating, enjoying the sunset is not what it is. For most people, and I'm definitely in this camp, it's incredibly uncomfortable. Oftentimes you have to look a lot of your mental demons right in the face. A lot of my insecurity came up. A lot of my self-hatred came up. A lot of my weird mental patterns of self-sabotage or, you know, rumination came up. It's not a peaceful thing. It is for me now, but in the beginning, it was quite painful to see a lot of those things that I spent my whole life pushing away and using drugs as, as one way to push it away. So doesn't that make you anxious to face those demons that you don't want to face? It did make me anxious. And that's why having support was really critical. So there was a, a professor at um, my school that taught a course called Eastern and Western Approaches to Mind and Body that was a great support. I really see her as like a surrogate mother in, in many ways. Um, I had the, you know, the Buddhist monk. She was fantastic. I had the, you know, support of my community. I don't think I could have done it alone. So having other people on the path was really critical for me to face those demons and start to be with myself. Because again, so much of my story was driven by self-hatred. So the idea of actually being with myself and feeling the present moment was the antidote that I needed. All right. So you said mindfulness, which is not like what you said, what we think about. It's actually facing your demons and then allowing that a lot by facing them, it makes you calm later. Yeah. So 
you know, the stuff that people say about mindfulness or meditation of, you know, calm, serenity, harmony, yin, yang, that is a side effect, but it's not the goal. And a lot of Buddhist teaching will speak about that of like, yeah, you know, your mental health will improve, but really it's just about being with yourself and in the present moment, no matter what, no matter if it's painful, no matter if it's pleasurable, no matter if it's boring, just trying to really be with yourself. And in, in meditation, we use the breath as an anchor where we are constantly moving our mind back to the breath. Whenever it spins up into thought, you just notice that with no judgment, nothing, and you bring yourself back to the breath. And over time that becomes more practiced and more automatic. Is it more like desensitization, like, like seeing like the bad thing that, you know, whatever that is, whether it's a bad event or a bad thing, facing that and then, you know, getting through that? I think that can be an aspect for sure. I think my experience was more of listening to my brain. So let me say how to frame this. Oftentimes the brain is really, the mind is concerned with surface thoughts. It can be, what am I going to do? What's my to-do list? Uh, what's the most previous conversation I had? Oh, did I do that right? Or did I do that wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, am I attractive enough? Am I strong enough? All these things that are constantly filling our mind with things. Meditation systematically over time with enough practice slows all that down so that the unconscious stuff can raise to the top, right? And it's this idea of really listening to the mind. And having what's called in Buddhism a vipassana, which is a insight, this idea of something comes to the mind that is really true. For an example of like, oh my God, I feel like there's something really wrong with me on a deep level, really feeling that shame. Or, oh my God, I am really afraid of X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, I really hate this about myself. Those thoughts come to the forefront. The things that are kind of running in the background that are dictating our, our behavior become very apparent when we're in meditation for a long enough amount of time. I imagine that's very hard, like for addiction treatment, that you have to get somehow sober and get your brain back, and, you know, as a step one before you could even do what you're suggesting. Is that true? I, I think that's true. I, I think, so I also work with depth psychology and a big part of what I do is that the person has to be sober to do any of that because you're doing deep work and you're really, you know, you're sending like a little probe down into your brain, into your unconscious. And if that signal gets scrambled because of a drug or or, an al or alcohol, it can be really confusing to know what you're hearing. Um, and I, that's why I'm very hesitant. There are some people, and this is my own judgment, I need to own this, that meditate on marijuana, right? Or meditate with psychedelics or say that they're doing a meditation that's drug assisted for me, that's never been effective because it really does get scrambled. So again, the signal gets scrambled if you are intoxicated. It's it's interesting and I think important to, to hear you say that because if you look at the internet, <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to, to buy psychedelics and mushrooms are being promoted um, and, and legalized and marijuana is used as a way of better mental health. But in the short run, maybe it helps you escape, but in the long run, it probably messes you up. Yeah, I think that's 100% true, right? It's like I certainly used marijuana to deal with my anxiety, but it didn't cure my anxiety. It just made me high instead of being anxious. And in fact, it, it weakened that system in me mm -hmm. because I never really dealt with my anxiety. You know, a lot of my anxiety was social. And I remember the big tipping moment where I decided to stop smoking weed was this realization that, again, I kind of found in meditation, but that marijuana was keeping me small. I wouldn't answer the phone. I wouldn't talk to people. I wouldn't flirt with girls. I wouldn't go out. I would just get high, be in my room, play video games, and just be in the hole, be in the, be in the cocoon. Right. And because you were using when your brain was still growing, right, probably under the age of 25, um, it was stunting the growth of your brain. I mean, you overcame that, but for a while, you know, it makes it harder to overcome. Absolutely. Yeah. Standing with my brain and I just wasn't getting those novel experiences that the brain needs to grow. Mm -hmm. The brain needs to be put in uncomfortable situations so that it can adapt and that it can grow and that it can learn new skills and, and practice feeling stress. I was living in a cocoon of my own making that was yeah. enabling that again, I wasn't feeling anxious, but I also wasn't growing. Right. Exactly. You're, you need to, and you're creating those neuronal pathways and they could either be made stronger by using weed and chasing that or, you know, chasing, you know, math and science and arts and sports or something else. Mm -hmm. Right.
Mm-hmm. Um, so pretend I'm like, what if I was your client and I'm coming to you with, with an, a, a problem with addiction? How, how do you take a client through that process? Do you first need them to be sober? Or you help them? Your, your therapy starts after that detox phase? Or let's pretend I'm your client. Take me through that. Absolutely. So typically, because I'm in private practice, I work just with myself. Um, I I come in usually after a detox or after a rehab or after an IOP, an intensive outpatient program. So they've already done a fair amount of at least getting the drugs out of their system. Mm -hmm. They've usually developed some sort of therapeutic language from their treatment that they've had there. Maybe they have some uh, DBT skills or they have some kind of coping mechanism. Tell us what DBT skills are. Yeah, DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And it's a great methodology. I encourage your listeners to to look it up a lot. There's a lot of really great free resources online. But it's it's really just like life skills. I mean, there's there's four pillars to it. Uh, The first one's mindfulness. That's a big one. There's interpersonal um, effectiveness. So how to have arguments, how to have, how to talk to people, how to set boundaries. Um, There's distress tolerance, which is what to do when you're really freaking out. How do you really regulate your nervous system and bring yourself down? Um, And then there is, uh, what's the last one? Oh, there's there's like uh, healthy habits. There's, there's like a DBT word for it, but essentially it's how to like take care of yourself, how to keep your room tidy, how to cook for yourself, things like that. So you can consider it kind of like basic functioning as far as that goes. And that's, you know, it's outside the scope of what I do because I, for those people that are really deep in addiction, they need, they need some really intensive education around how to uh, live on their own, right? How to function in society. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, actually, it sounds like something, even if you don't have an addiction, that those are all very good things to to, to know about. Yeah, it, it's definitely good, good things to start with. So I usually see them after that. They've usually been sober. I mean... So people got there, I call it getting your brain back. You know, you got your, you know, because you're not you. You're not that person when when your brain is hijacked on drugs. That's uh, Once you get off the drugs, then your real you comes out. Yes, yes. So that is when I start to work with people. Exactly then, right? When the way really starts to come out. And again, right, and I'm not, I guess I don't want to challenge what, what you're saying. I think that there is something in addiction literature where it's like, okay, you get off drugs and then your life is just sunshine and rainbows yeah, and it's no. wonderful. No, absolutely not, right? No. It is incredibly miserable, right? The best words that I've heard is um, quiet desperation. Mm. You know, it's like I've done everything right, but now I'm feeling empty and I'm still upset. And for many people, I'm in this boat, that when you get sober, your brain kind of goes back to the time before you started using, mm-hmm. right? Like I had to deal with, you know, in unhealthy ways, but I dealt with grief. I dealt with social anxiety. I dealt with, um, you know, not feeling comfortable in my own body. Weed, I'm just use that as an example. I used a lot of drugs, but we'll just stick with weed, was a way that I coped with that, that I self-medicated. So now that I remove that, all those issues are still there. Right. Because I didn't deal with it. And I have to wake up to my life. And, you know, I'm from a fairly privileged position. So I, a lot of my mistakes were reversible, but there are some individuals that have significantly less privilege than I do, or that have been, they use drugs for a lot longer than I do, where those mistakes are, are irrecoverable. You know, we can talk of loss of life or, you know, a divorce or, you know, significant mental and physical health um, ailments that it's very hard for people to get sober when they know that on the other side is dealing with the real, the real stuff. Right. which is a lot of pain right out the gate. And you're able to do all this without medications for some people, right? Some people need to be on medication. Some people aren't. Just to get back to my sister's question, it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not one pill to fix things. It's, it's really maybe medicines help with some effects, but you still have to do the hard work that sounds like you have done. Yeah. So oh, I think medication, something like, you know, antabuse, you know, or suboxone or, or methadone, I think can be really effective to let them do the deeper work. I don't think it's it's a cure in of itself. I, I have the same belief, just so you, just to be transparent, about psychoactive medication. Right, antidepressants think, or anxiolytics. Yeah, exactly. Like I think all those can be really effective, but they're not the solution. Mm-hmm. They let people do the work, which for addiction, you know, the way I frame it is creating a life that's worth living life that I'm excited to get up and interact with. Because mm-hmm. I can tell you when I was in my, you know, drug phase, I didn't want to live. 
I, I didn't love my life. I wanted to be high. I didn't, I didn't want to be sober. I didn't want to, I was very miserable in a lot of ways. And many addicts are that. And they use the, you know, again, when you pull that stuff away, then you got to work on the misery. <laughs> you know, you got to build a life that you actually want to have. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's true for depression too, right? It's, uh... Right. I think it's, it's very similar with depression, just like with drugs. Once the depression symptoms go away, say you take a you know medication or, or something, then yeah, you wake up and you're like, oh wait, I, I don't have a lot of friends and I don't have a loved one in my life and I don't, my job sucks and my physical body is not where I want it to be. And there's all these demons that you then have to confront to build a life that you want or else the depression can be, you know, that kind of warm, soft blanket that a person can fall back into. Yeah. You say that you use neuroscience in therapy. Can you share with us what you mean by that? I do, yeah. So my undergrad was from uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and I brought in, I studied neuroscience. And that really helps, I think, addicts in particular because it depersonalizes what's going on. Mm -hmm. So often I have a couple little anecdotes, and you know, I want to share them here if, if you need. But the idea is tell us, I tell explain... us some anecdotes. Anecdotes are always fun. Okay, yeah. So so the, uh, somebody's talking about marijuana. So marijuana is, because we're talking about that, is a incredibly popular in Colorado, right? It's legal. You know, a lot of people use it. They don't understand the risks. So when I talk about how marijuana affects the brain and one way it does is it reduces uh, the action potential of a neuron firing. So what that means is the amount of energy that it takes to fire the neuron goes down. So when you're high, your neurons are firing faster. They take less effort, less energy to go, which for some people creates what they call creativity, because they're having all these neurons firing. But for most people, it creates anxiety. For some people, it creates short-term memory loss. Because if you have, this is a, obviously an oversimplification, but if you have a, a thought going in one pattern and then you fire something right behind it, it's going to interrupt that one thought that was going. So explaining things like that, I work with a lot of men, so I use, um, <laughs> I use war metaphors. So I say it's like, you know, you're going from using a sniper rifle to a shotgun. It's just a blast. It's a spread. It's very violent. It kind of screws the neurons up. And like you were saying, actually, Renit, earlier, that whatever fires together, wires together. So you end up getting these kind of random wiring because the neuronic pattern is a lot more chaotic uh, than, you know, a, a typical normal thought, right? Or, or a sober thought. Right. So by explaining stuff like that to my clients, it helps to depersonalize it because they're like, oh, it's not me. It's my brain. It's my chemistry. It's something physiological that, that's going on. Uh, it's not that I'm a scattered person. It's no, it's I'm actually like high all the time. My brain has these faulty, this faulty wiring that's, that, that's going on. Uh, so I think it really helps to give people a handle on it and to make them feel like there's a pathway out and that they're not just broken, if that makes sense. All right. And they can yeah. get those pathways back. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. You say that you work mostly with men. Um, we had a podcast with Dr. Letitia Bader, and she works mostly with women. So maybe uh, this is kind of interesting. How how is it different um, in specializing in men rather than women? Yeah, um, for sure. So I will say I want to I ask the question all the time. I do also preface that like these are stereotypes. These are in general statements. Yeah. Uh, but I have found a few things with men. I think. With men in general, we don't have emotional language. And I think it's difficult for women, some women, not all women, to fully like grok that because we're not trained to talk about our emotions. So when you ask a guy, how do you feel? Oftentimes we'll say, I don't know. And it's not that we're avoiding the question. It's that we literally do not know what we're feeling because, you know, Maybe there's, well, I mean, I, I do think that there are physiological differences, but I think there's also major cultural differences. I think there's major conditioning and, and training and, and sociological and gender differences where we're not given that language, right? The media that we consume as young boys has none of that, you know? Um, it's kind of considered, it's getting better now, but I'll, I'll use the words considered gay to talk about your emotions. It's considered feminine. It's considered weak. So we don't, we literally don't have a lot of practice getting into that emotional space. And if you ask a guy how they feel, they'll say, I don't know. They'll say like, hey, I feel hungry or I feel tired, you know, and the emotions that we're allowed to have are, you know, angry, happy, and horny. Those are all that we're allowed to have. So when I work with men, it's a lot of it is in the beginning, initial phases is building that emotional intelligence so they can actually start to identify what it is that they're feeling and rebuilding that connection. Because we're really good as a, as a gender of avoiding our feelings and avoiding what is 
you know, the source of our intuition, which can be very powerful by getting really logical and overthinking things and really trying to be like, okay, what is the most tactically advantageous way to deal with this? But oftentimes a man will often end up betraying their own feelings and betraying their intuition and end up in situations where they're bearing a lot of resentment, you know, or they're not acting in line with their values or they're violating their own principles. And for, I would say for guys, I think for anyone in general, when you're acting out of line with your values, it creates a lot of emotional distress and a lot of suffering because you're not living in the, the life that you want to live. You know? It's interesting what you say. So I have, you know, two daughters and two sons. My sons were born first and then my daughters. And uh, I definitely see that boys don't express themselves emotionally and the girls are like overly emotional. <laughs> and uh, the same parents, I don't think I gave them a different upbringing. I think they are, they have different genetic makeup that makes it that way for, I think, for men. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, like women bond through being right? through being with each other and sharing emotions and, you know, being all kind of in the same thing. So you can see it probably see it with your daughters is that when one is upset, the other one will also get upset and they're, they're bonding. Right. Yeah. Whereas men, we bond by doing, by accomplishing a goal together. And oftentimes emotions are seen as an obstacle. They're not something to bond over. They're something to attack and a kill. Like a right? video because game? <laughs> like a video game, like a, like prey, right? Like if you can, again, overgeneralization, but if you go back to ancient, you know, civilizations, hunters and gatherers, right? Men are really in that hunt mode where things are obstacles. We deal with things with violence, with killing. It's why men and women fight all the time in a relationship where the woman will say, hey, I just want you to understand and not try to fix it. Whereas the man is seeing the emotion saying, oh, my wife is sad. I need to kill her sadness because sadness is bad, right? That's literally how our brain works, yeah. right? Whereas the woman might be coming in place of like, hey, I just want him to understand and actually maybe feel a little bit sad with me to know that he's taking my life seriously, to know that he really cares. So it, it's a total like mismatch of things. Um, so yeah, so talking about emotions is, is a big one. And I think, uh, you know, something I focus on a lot is understanding toxic masculinity, which is a lot of these messages that men get about what it means to be a man. How do you be a good man? You know, how you compete what, what with, with other men. What does that mean, toxic masculinity? Does that mean being masculine is toxic or what does that mean? No, not at all. That's a good clarification. It is a newer term uh, where it's some messages about masculinity are restrictive. And this idea that there is one masculinity that is superior to all others is not true. So I don't think, I mean, I'm, I consider myself a masculine man, but it's because I've come to my own definition of masculinity and it's something that I try to live out every day. So I don't think, I think being a man is, is awesome. I'm, I'm very much, very, very much into it. But some of the messages, like the idea of, we're talking about, right, that men don't have emotions or men don't need other people mm -hmm. or the, the goal of a man is to be the rock in the relationship or the only way to judge a man is by his uh, status, success, and, and money. There's a lot of these messages that are given to young boys through media, through, through culture, through other men in their life that really messes them up, really messes them up and gives them this default masculinity that doesn't serve a lot of people, right? And, and I think that's where it becomes toxic is that you have a lot of people, a lot of men judging themselves, often with imaginary characters, truly, with movie stars and athletes and, you know, comic book heroes of what it means to be a man. Is that new to this generation or is this something, you know, since prehistoric times? I, I think it's ebbed and flowed. You know, so I read a lot of literature on, on masculinity and you can see that the idea of masculinity has changed pretty profoundly over the course of, of culture. I think it's actually right now, I think it's actually really opening up. Uh, I think the Generation Z is doing a great job of challenging a lot of these things, not taking, not taking the, the messages. Um, but I think in some cultures, I guess that's kind of like a half answer. In some cultures, it is way more strict and some cultures it's actually quite expansive. So... Uh, one thing that I found as, as a kind of model for healthy masculinity is the uh, Jungian archetypes for men, which if your readers don't know, Carl Jung was a psychoanalyst who studied many, many cultures around the world around the turn of the century. And he developed all these archetypes, which are these characters that appear in different stories. And he found that it doesn't matter what culture you go, the same type of characters show up again and again. And the ones that are men are king, 
warrior, magician, and lover. And by using that, you can see different cultures tend to rely on different ones and deprioritize other ones. So in American culture, for instance, we're very much a warrior culture. Very much, it's all about like going out there, collecting the money, slaying the dragons, working really hard. You got to be strong, both physically, mentally, financially. It's all about, you know, how many kills can you rack up? How many women can you have sex with? Um, it's it's that kind of culture of the biggest warrior is the best warrior. And we really deprioritize lover, the lover architect of the man. We really deprioritize the magician. Um, the king, which is kind of like the leadership, is often kind of warped into this weird like tyrant authoritarian thing. And those archetypes will change based on the cultures that you look at. What Carl Jung posits, and I tend to agree with this, um, is that a healthy masculinity can contain all four of them and you can move between them at will. You're not really bound by one archetype or another. Interesting. And um, as part of your profession at one time, especially you specialize in men at you um, with aggression and you've worked in a jail with a jail population with that a great percentage of them have had issues with addiction. How? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So they all, the ones I worked with all had addiction. So I was working in the substance abuse treatment part of the uh, part of the jail there. And I mean, the biggest thing I think I have to say about that is that that really taught me about privilege. And about how a lot of these guys who I worked with didn't have any other choice. And truly, I truly believe that where they were often grown up where their parents were, you know, or their, their dad in particular was also incarcerated. So a lot of them grew up without a healthy masculine father, without a, you know, male figure. Um, they were drawn to gangs because it's the only truly in their community, the only sense of belonging and power that they could get. A lot of young men feel this idea to have to prove themselves. And for those guys, violence and crime was a way to prove yourself because they didn't have the mental health support in the beginning. They didn't have community outreach programs. They didn't have things like a, a school that had a sports team, you know, even things like that, that I think, you know, people of my race, I'm, I'm white, Jewish, male, um, take for granted. A lot of these people that I was working with did not have choices. And I'm not saying that everyone is kind of uh, damned in that way. It's just that the ones that make it out are exceptional, are ex exceptions, but it's certainly not the rule. Like the, the cards are really, really stacked against people in, you know, lower income and often um, communities of color. So seeing that in the jail was pretty significant for me. You also probably saw, I don't know if it's a chicken and the egg analogy. And one is the use of drugs at a young age that's damaging to the brain. And on the other hand, the envi environment that also promotes drugs and, like you said, crime and not good role models or av other avenues of, of being healthy for your brain. Did, did you see the connection between the two? Is there a way to separate or it's just a big mishmash? I think they're really the same. I mean, I think those are really good points that you're raising. It's it's it is a chicken and the egg. It's it's hard to know which one to work on first. I think the solution is to work on both of them. But you know, if you're looking at it, again, this is a stereotype, but it is people that I that I did work with. Is if you're looking at someone from a low income community, being a drug dealer is often the most lucrative option that they have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really hard for again white people like myself to really realize is that they're not in schools that are pushing them towards college. They don't have a lot of job opportunities, especially now with like the great resignation, you know, you're going to work like a minimum wage job where also you're facing systemic racism and you're getting paid minimum wage, or are you going to deal drugs where you can have your own hours, right? You can get high while you're doing it. You can maybe even get laid while you're doing it. It's it, it just like- And have a lot of bling. <laughs> and have a lot of bling and, 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 and have respect to the community, fear of the community. Um, have status. I mean, it, it is it isn't a lucrative career path, and and it makes a lot of sense that they're going to be drawn towards that and have belonging, be part of a culture that that honors the struggle that you're going through and directly speaks to a struggle that that you're going through. So, it's. I mean, I don't blame them. I, I think a lot of it is environmental, and I think what you know. Again, I'm not going to solve this in in this podcast, but I think what really needs to happen is, um, I mean, one which is hard to say is that people that get out need to go back in and actually act as role models and mentors, that's a big ask because many of those people, when they get out, they never want to go back. And it's hard for them to reinvest in the community. So I think that there is a little bit of a call there. But they also have and to I, take care of themselves and how can they, like, they have to like get good before they go back, right? Because otherwise they would relapse. 
Exactly, exactly. And there are a, a wide, a, a big amount of, you know, advocates and people that are, that came from those environments that can really speak to the people in those environments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really critical. I think that is, again, it's a big ask, but it is. I'm going to have one of those on my show effective. and I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about that. I'm you should. Have, yeah. I'm going to have a show with Dominique who actually came. He's, you know, from using, dealing, everything, and now he's gone back to, to helping. Somebody. Yeah, I think that's the most powerful thing. I mean, if you look at kind of the war on poverty, which was, you know, a lot of government intervention, which was a lot of like, quite frankly, white intervention in, you know, uh, neighborhoods of color, it didn't work because it didn't come from the same foundation. So it was mistrusted, understandably. The, the white people didn't really have an idea of what they were working with, what they were dealing with. A lot of them had their own kind of weirdly kind of selfish or, you know, value signaling motivations. Like it just didn't work. So I think the solution of like build more schools, build more of that doesn't really work. It has to come from inside, but it's like, how do you, how do you get that? Right. I mean, how do you, how do you move people through this, through a system and how do you start to like, you know, um, inspire and educate people? I think it's a really hard conversation that minds brighter than mine have not been able to crack. I don't know if I have the answers, but I, I would like decrease supply and, you mm-hmm. know, so there's less availability to that. I mean, you'll never get to zero, but if you have less supply and then um, starting at a very young age and teaching resiliency, you know, and, and ability to have other uh, hopes um, and aspirations, you know, that are positive, you know, starting at a very young age to, to protect the brain. Yeah, I, I think I think those are great. I think any kind of money towards education, towards community centers, towards any kind of outreach is really critical. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just I think it's just really tough to to encounter to encounter that. Um, right. It's a lot of systemic suffering, and, and uh, I mean, true. Like I said before, I'm kind of repeating myself. But like the deck is really stacked against some of these communities, and it's it's tragic. It's really tragic to see. Right, and I am. I think with marijuana, not just legalization, but I've heard from one of our experts that we had glorification of of marijuana. It makes it harder because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're damaging, you're, you're asking to decrease substance use and people are, oh, we want to do something about fentanyl. But if you don't talk about marijuana and don't start at a young age, you're just creating a whole new generation of people who are going to need treatment, which may be good business for you, but 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 I'm sure you're like a dentist. You know, you want to keep those teeth brushed and you want less dental visits, right? You want, we want less mental health uh, visits and need, not more. Yes, exactly. I mean, I want, and I kind of work my practice with this is to shift the conversation around, around mental health is that you don't have to be at rock bottom to get treatment, right? I think kind of what you're talking about is that preventive is the best. You can get it at a young age. If you want to, you know, going into college or kind of coming of age, I think it's fantastic to talk to a therapist then. And it can be something where if you want to go from surviving in your life to thriving. So I don't feel like I need to have more people have uh, addictions, but I, I do want people to utilize therapy more mm-hmm. proactively as something, you know, just like if you're serious about your fitness, you get a personal trainer. If you're serious about your mental health, you should get a therapist. Yeah. And that's saying something different, which, but but I like that. Like, you know, start at a young age before you have massive problems, uh, yeah. kind of as, you know, if you can afford that. Right. I guess I think that that's something of uh, that that's you know not available to everybody. But if, if you have it available, then then that's great. You'll be a healthier person, regardless of addiction and without having to have a serious mental health diagnosis. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Teaching in schools, making it available through community programs. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, again, I mean, the hard part that I found, especially working with these underprivileged communities, is them utilizing the service because there is a massive lack of trust. And it's hard to get somebody who's working three jobs to also attend a DBT class during the night. It's just, it's just a right. really Something hard ask for do. those people, right. right? Yeah, if they got multiple kids, maybe the, the dad is as absent, unfortunately. It's, it's hard, right? I mean, it's a big ask to get people to participate. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, contingency management. I don't know if you use that in your, in your practice. Um, it's a gold standard for people who have methamphetamine use disorder. That's the, the biggest problem that we're seeing. Um, in emergency departments in California, also with the medical examiner, actually more problems, deaths related to meth. And yet there's no medication to treat meth like there is for opioids. Um, so we have contingency management. Is I don't know if that's something that if you deal with people who've been addicted to methamphetamines and still need that kind of therapy. 
Uh, I don't in my private practice. I usually deal with people that if they have used methamphetamine, it's they've been sober for a long time. Um, I personally would refer someone to a higher level of care. If they're working with methamphetamine, I don't think a um, you know a weekly private practice therapist is equipped to do that. So I I, I humbly refer those people up. And of, of the different substance use disorders that you treat in people who have addiction, what's the number one? Is it alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, cocaine? Probably alcohol. Probably alcohol. I think um, marijuana and cocaine are probably tied for number two. It tends to be, people tend to have like a mix of it all, you know, but I, I think they come in for alcohol is something that is has more conversation and, and at least has more awareness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think in Colorado people aren't talking. I mean, they're, I guess, they're starting to talk about marijuana addiction, but not in the way that I think you are on this show. And things like that are more illegal, like, you know, cocaine or, or methamphetamine, people don't want to talk about, right? They, they hide them because they think they're going to get in trouble. So alcohol is certainly the, the main thing that I think people come in for initially. And then, you know, the roots go deep. So mm-hmm. you just kind of start digging. There, there are, and I've had guests who, you know, they specialize just in cannabis use disorder. And there's whole yeah. clinics just for that in Colorado, because I think with increased use in Colorado is known for that, 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 uh, there, there's more treatment centers like now that specialize just in that. Totally, um, it's a big problem out here. Yeah. Do you want to share a, a client success story? Um, yeah, I mean, a ton of them. I, I um, let me think. Let me pull one off the off the old Rolodex here. I think a big success story was working with a client, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to do a composite client that struggled with marijuana addiction and. What is underneath that for this person was an unbelievable amount of shame and family trauma. So this person was raised by teen parents. Um, he, you know, had sexual assault when he was younger. He just had a lot of good reasons to numb out. Let me put it that way. And a lot of good reasons to not feel his experience. And that's often what I see with, with my clients is, you know, I'm sure you probably talked with people, but trauma and addiction are hand in hand is that often we're self-medicating for a good reason. So the work that I try to do with people is to get them to go back and, and heal that and be able to, I mean, not just make meaning of it, but I work with a lot of groups in my practice. I, I, uh, I run three men's groups. So the idea is to connect with other people around it as well. That's very, very critical to feel less alone. It's kind of a similar to kind of what the A model is. Um, you know, I mean, this client is currently a work in progress, but now, you know, they're out there pursuing hobbies, they're getting into gardening, they're pursuing a new job, they're, they're finally getting excited about life. And I think that's the main outcome. You know, I'm not really, I don't know, I, I guess, as being a depth psychotherapist, I'm not super interested in how much money they make or how successful they are, or if they have a, a, if they're married or not, which is, you know, this person is, and it's great. But really, what I'm monitoring for is like, do they love being alive? Do they have a, a set of principles that they can live by? Because again, you probably know this too, is that with addiction, there's a lot of deception and a lot of both self-deception and deception of others. So living a life that's authentic and just honest is what I judge success by. Can can you elaborate that? That sounds really important. So what are the deceptions that if you have addiction uh, yeah. would be? Uh, I mean, so many, I, mean, I can start with, I think with self-deception, it's this idea of like, oh, it's not really a problem. Or uh, we talked about with marijuana before, oh, I need this, this is my medicine. Or, you know, I'm more interesting because I have X, Y, and Z. Or because I'm the guy with cocaine is why I get girlfriends. Or, you know, I am strong because I drink my, I drink all my friends underneath the table, right? All these little lies that we tell ourselves over and over again, oh, it's not that bad, you know, um, this uh, anxiety that I have, there's no way it's connected to my drinking. There's no way it's connected to my cocaine. Oh, my, you know, lack of ability to get a job. There's no way that's connected to, you know, the, the opiates that I'm taking on the side, right? Like it's this, it's this constant kind of self-deception that keeps the addiction alive. That's so true. And I think anybody who's dealt with anybody who's using <laughs> drugs and they're actively using, they have that deception. How do you break that? Uh, let's go back, you know, full circle back to that mindfulness. It's really getting people through conversation and ultimately through feeling to understand that they're miserable and to understand undeniably that they're miserable and connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these people, and again, I work mainly with men. So a lot of like the male use culture is that it's all about fun. I guess for women too. It's all about fun. It's all about connection. It's all about social. But when you look at their life, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that night you didn't pick up a chick 
Even when you did, like you woke up miserable, right? You went home alone. You drank a bottle of whiskey by yourself and like threw up in your bathroom, right? I mean, there's like all these like awful moments that come with addiction that, you know, if you get people talking and, you know, again, really paying attention to them and listening to them and looking them in the eye and those emotions are going to, are going to well up. And once they have enough of those experiences, it's like, yeah, and it's time to let down this, this perception. It's time to, to realize what, what's going on. Um, Yeah. So you talked about the deception. I, I totally understand that. How about going the other way, the ideal, the gold standard where you, you're happy, where you said this, this is what you mark as a happy person. What, what is that? What are those? Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing, and again, mostly with men, but I imagine women can relate to this too, is living by a code. I, I work with this a lot with the guys that I work with, is having some sort of purpose and principles that you can, can draw you, can on. Can you give us an example? What's a good code? Yeah. So the one that, that I use is uh, strength, courage, mastery, and honor. So I try to live my life in a way that demonstrates strength, right? That I can build mastery, that I can be courageous, and I can act honorably. You know, if you go back to Buddhism, there's something like the Eightfold Path. If you look at Christianity, there's the Ten Commandments, right? The Japanese has the Bushido, right? I mean, there's like this idea of these so what, codes. What's strength? Is that physical strength? Like I can lift, uh, you know, 100 pounds or? or... It's, it's uh, well, I mean, maybe part of it, but it's like it's doing the hard thing, right? So having the strength to do the hard thing, but that can look like the physically hard thing for sure. But I think also the emotionally hard thing, have that tough conversation, say the thing that is not being said, you know, step into conflict. And of course, a healthy way, you know, having the strength to engage with my own emotions, to really honor my own emotions, to not numb out. I think sobriety is a big source of strength, right? Of like, hey, I'm really sad right now. And I'm just going to feel that instead of get high, you know, mm -hmm. Um that, that's what strength is. It's kind of all encompassing. It's not how much you can bench press, but it's, mm -hmm. it's finding ways to demonstrate strength. And I think just like any organic system through strength is how we build resiliency, right? By meeting that perfect level of challenge. That's not too hard that we get injured, but not too easy that we stay at the same place. It's really finding that level of challenge that inspires the body to grow. So strength is a big, is a big part of that. Right. And then the other, your second one was. Yeah. So the second one was, is mastery. Mastery um, of like, and what is that? Like, I'm really good at being a podcaster. Or... <laughs> right. I'm really good at stuff, right? Okay. So for, for me, it's, again, it, it's about being good at stuff, but it's also about mindfulness is a big part of mastery for me. It's about this idea that, and this is true from Zen Buddhism, which is mainly what I study, is if you, how I say this, it's like if you pay enough attention to something, mm -hmm. you notice nuanced details that lead to mastery. So there's this really common parable in Zen about pouring the perfect cup of tea, right? And the perfect cup of tea is not following the directions perfectly. The perfect cup of tea is really being with the tea leaves, with the cup, with the water, with the pot. And the perfect cup of tea is different for every moment, but you're pouring it in a way that it's kind of in synchronicity with the environment. Hopefully that, that, that makes sense. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I'm a very type A person. If I had to do mastery, I'd be depressed all the time because I would never feel like I'm good enough. Right. So that's me too. I'm also type A. I'm also perfectionist. So for me, mastery, again, is not about being the best. It's about attending to the moment. And if I can pay enough attention to that moment, then it's perfect. It's kind of it's kind of like a head trip to, to think about, right? It needs another word. Another word to it. Yeah. Master, instead of mastery, because that mastery, I don't know. I feel like that's like setting me up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, you can find your own code, right? I mean, right, for, right. For, for me, mastery has been one because it's not about being a master. Okay. It's about cultivating mastery. Okay. So with that also includes, I'll say it in a different way, also includes commitment. Okay. It also includes a lot of time and attention. It includes saying no to things that are kind of irrelevant to me. And being like, no, I really want to focus. So for instance, I'm in a long-term relationship. I really want to focus on my partner. I'm a very committed monogamous individual, right? Like I want to be with her. I want to know her. I want to understand her emotions. I want to be there for her long-term. I want to not like be her master in like a dominant sense, mm -hmm. but I want to gain mastery over our relationship and really devote time and energy and effort into that. Because what I found in my life is that again, this is kind of counter to my, you know, act behaviors is that I would do a lot of things and I would go just until I hit the first major obstacle. And with the first major obstacle, I would bail out. I would just be like, nope, not gonna do that too hard. You know, I'm gonna start something new. 
And I would just keep flitting from new, 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 new. And I would never go deep enough into something Mm -hmm. where I've found that when you get to those advanced problems, whether it be in a, a skill or a hobby or exercise or whatever, that's where the learning really happens. It's kind of on that advanced level. Yeah, um, that's yeah. great. And then you the know. third one, just since we will continue the third. Yeah, since we're going down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's courage. courage. Courage, right? So that's fairly self-explanatory, that but it's, it's easier. Yeah. And I think the thing that differentiates me from courage is this idea. It's not about not having fear. It's about feeling fear but then doing the thing anyway, right? So acting in fear, you know, um, again, being a male, use a lot of war metaphors, right? Like there's something, a uh, uh, Jekyll Willick is like a, a Navy SEAL guy who writes books. And, and he says that, you know, it's not that Navy SEALs are less afraid. It's that Navy SEALs can act while they're afraid. And that really stuck with me. And that's my thing of courage where, again, whether it's an emotional conversation or a physical feat or, I don't know, applying for a job or, or taking a risk. Like it's about acknowledging the fear and acting, you know, through it is really important for me. And the more I can be in those fearful situations, the more I know that I'll grow. Very good. I love that. And uh, another thing that you specialize in is uh, anxiety. Wanna, is it kind of the same principles as depression that you for used for treatment or a little different? Yeah. So anxiety is really interesting because it is very physical for many people. So the idea is really helping them, again, DBT skills can be very helpful, is learning how to cope through the anxiety. Things like, you know, very very practical things like deep breathing, grounding yourself in the room by attending to different objects, um, feeling your feet on the ground. Mindfulness is also really helpful for anxiety. But then understanding where that comes from. For a lot of people, that's that's trauma too, right? So, you know, anxiety is just fear. It's just like the modern word for fear. And a lot of people are living in fear. And when it was put to me that way that really helped me understand what it is that I'm treating is I'm treating a chronic condition of fear. So by understanding what made the person afraid, helping them take meaningful action, which for some people is, you know, a big conversation with their parents is a very common one, right? Um, you know, changing something in their life, leaving a relationship, changing their job, really understanding where that fear is coming from helps to make meaningful change to reduce anxiety. Yeah, I think that's primary anxiety. As an emergency physician, I, you know, when I see people who are clearly anxious. I, I first make sure because oftentimes it's related to being high, like if you're mm-hmm. anxious. And you know, I had a patient the other day who took something and he was like, you know, clearly very anxious and sweating, and his heart rate's really high, and he's anxious, but it comes from you know uh, uh, an organic cause, and um, you know can't even diagnose anxiety at that point. And the other one that I see that very commonly that's very harder to diagnose if you, unless you ask the question is withdrawal, you know, because withdrawal from marijuana or benzodiazepines or opiates, it's, it feels like anxiety. So you have to kind of treat that first before you, you know, um, go into, to, I guess, where you're at when people are already over that phase. Right, exactly. I think I work more with like the chronic anxiety or the mental health version of anxiety. I, I think like what what you might be experiencing is more of like, yeah, withdrawal is like a flushing reaction or it's a stimulant reaction that, yeah, that people will call it anxiety, but yeah, it's a very chemical process. It's a very chemically induced situation. Right. Well, cannabis um, withdrawal is headache, insomnia, um, oh, yeah. anxiety, Nightmares. right? And, and uh, when I say that to because no. patients who use think, oh, no, no, I'm not addicted. I'm not withdrawing because they picture alcohol withdrawal or mm-hmm. they picture opioid withdrawal. So they don't they don't, it's like, no, I don't have that until I explain what it is. And then they're like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe that's true. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely in that, but I didn't realize that cannabis had to withdraw until I started having yeah, nightmares and sweats and couldn't sleep and all that stuff. I was like, whoa, this thing really has like a hold over me. Right. And then you use, and then you feel better. And yeah, right. That's, that's the definition. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so there's something about, I don't know if you've noticed it with you or your clients that, there's even more of a denial with marijuana. And, and I don't know if it's the drug or if it's society, like normalization of it, that has more of a, like, no, no, I, I'm not addicted. I don't have a problem. Like, you know, people who are using cocaine or methamphetamines or other harder drugs or even alcohol come to the realization that it's a problem. They still have an addiction. But I, I feel like there's more of a denial. And I don't, I don't know if you think that's true. I, I think it's true. I think it's true. And I think it's both. You know, I, I think the current 
conversation around marijuana has been, and this is how they're getting it legalized, right? Is that it's a medicine, right? I mean, it often starts medical marijuana before you get recreational. Mm -hmm. So this idea is that it can't be bad for you, right? It comes from the earth. It's a natural plant, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, so is heroin. So is, right? Right, right. So is cocaine, right? <laughs> so is cocaine, right? It's like, I don't know if so that's is tobacco. So is tobacco. <laughs> right. So is alcohol, yeah. right? So like people, people kind of latch onto that. I, I think that there is a lot of conversation um, I think especially in like far left communities about how it can be a vehicle for spiritual development, about how it's like the cure-all for everything, right? It's like the silver bullet for like eating disorder and, you know, anxiety and depression. And PTSD and, and everything. PTSD. Right, right. It's, it's, it's everything. And that's just, I mean, that's just not true. Um, and I think the drug too, I mean, I think being high, at least for me and for some of the clients I work with, it really is a smokescreen. That's how I, I use it. Like it really does, it really blinded me to my life and it let me just burn time like no other drug that I did where I would just use it and I would, you know, I wouldn't black out obviously, but I would almost like I'd wake up and it'd be three weeks later. Like every day was the same, nothing novel really happened. I thought I was being like a creative genius and I was like really enjoying my life, but it was just like burning down the time really, really fast. And it built a lot of um, denial. And, you know, I, I think in, in men specifically, uh, because it's more important for us is that uh, marijuana also destroys testosterone levels. And I had really low testosterone when I was smoking because I was smoking quite a bit. And for men, it's testosterone is a lot of our fight hormone. It's a lot of our motivation hormone. Um, a lot of new research coming out is showing that a lot of uh, depression in men is heavily correlated with low testosterone, that it's not a, a chemical imbalance. Well, it's not a neurotransmitter issue. It's actually a hormonal issue. Did you actually so, have your blood testosterone level measured? Oh, yeah. It was awful. It was awful. Yeah. It was just, it was in the gutter. It was, it was a third of what it was supposed to be. When did, I was. Did you get treated with medications to supplement or just stop and then it came back up? Both. Both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I ended up using, I, I'm going to blank on the name. You, you may, you may know it being a, a doctor. I think it's like androzole or something like that. Essentially it's something that mm -hmm. uh, helps estrogen, has, has, has testosterone not convert into estrogen because I had high estrogen and low testosterone. Mm -hmm. So I had a good amount of hormones, but they were out of whack. And a lot of that uh, in men at least is caused by, you know, I was very sedentary. I was very overweight, um, had a very poor diet. So my estrogen production was, was kicked up. So I had to had that medically supported for a while. Um, so that combined with uh, not smoking marijuana brought me back. And now my testosterone levels are normal and fine. But that's something that also in young adulthood, as, as a man going through puberty, is going to stunt my growth in, in some other ways, right? Is that my testosterone was in the gutter. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think it's something that is, again, just starting to be talked about, but should be talked about more is male hormones because we, we got them too. And it's, they're worth monitoring. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, and look at the success you have. You have to be, you know, you're such a success story for for uh, being able to share your your story of you know kind of really being down, down and down in your testosterone level and 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 that. And I think you know, and even you said that you you've had been really down, like even thinking suicide. And now you are helping so many people. You're a doctor. You got your podcast. Tell us about your podcast. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thank you. I really appreciate that. The, the... The reflection there. Yeah, the podcast is called uh, From the Ashes. Uh, it's on everything, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever, to search for it. It's essentially, you know, talks to people from all walks of life uh, that are, that overcame something, right? That kind of rose from the ashes like a phoenix. So we spend time hearing their stories, getting that real personal connection, and then discussing the topics that, that come up. And I've met, I've met so many cool people through through that project. I've really liked doing it. I think that that's, that's my favorite part, too, is getting to meet different people like you. I mean, Mark, you're really inspiration. Um, been, you know, you're reaching out to, you know, your clients and then to the population at large by, by your voice. I really appreciate that. Love hearing your high truths here and seeing how you have really come up from the ashes. And so I encourage our listeners to, to go listen to um, Mark's uh, podcast as well. And any final advice to my my little sister, uh, that about, about anything. I mean, she asked about non-medications, but I mean, any mental health advice in general would be great. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is, I don't know if she's asking for herself or asking for someone in her life, but I think the main thing would just be to, to know that it gets better, right. To, to know that it will get better and that doing deep work specifically through, um, psychotherapy, I mean, meditation is also a great vehicle 
is going to be the hardest thing that her or someone else will ever do in their entire life, but it is the most powerful agent for change. And things that you think are just part of your personality or part of who you are or fatal flaws are 100% changeable. It's very hard, but it's 100% doable. That's very good. Very encouraging. I want to say thank you, Anat. I love you very much, my wonderful sister. I'm very happy that you are now forever part of my podcast. And I wish you and my nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews the best of health, success, and uh, drug-free life. And thank you, Dr. Mark Azoulay. I wish you the best of success in helping your clients and reaching out to the community at large with your podcast. Um, and for everyone to listen to From the Ashes, it's been wonderful having you here. And uh, I'm proud of you. I'm inspired by you. And really, thank you so much for being having the courage and speaking the truth and helping so many people. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. It was great being here. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.